Thanks to Curex for its continued support of AMR. Whether it's running, hiking, biking, court sports, golf, or even working, Curex insoles can help you live a healthy and active lifestyle. For 15% off, visit Curex.com and use code AMR15. Thanks to Fabric by Gerber Life for supporting another mother runner. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com AMR. Just a quick warning, in this episode, we touch upon the topic of disordered eating. Please take care when listening. Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. I'm joined today by Amanda Loudon. Hello, Amanda. Hey, Sarah. How are you? Good. Are you staying warm? It's actually our chilliest weather out of the whole winter. Mm-hmm. You know, the art, like I, I think Saturday I was still running in shorts. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And and then, yeah, I, I did. I ran I ran in shorts on Saturday. And then it's in been- Maryland. In Maryland. Okay. Okay. I need to correct the record on Maryland because (laughs) what I discovered when living in Colorado is I don't think people quite understand. This is a, we're below the Mason Dixon here. We're pretty stinking mild. Um, I mean, truly that's why like the winters freaked me out in Colorado, you know, and, and, and everyone would look at me and, you know, oh, but it's more mild in Colorado. I'm like, no, the hell it is. I mean, we, we, I mean, so to this morning, I ran in the coldest weather we've had all year. And by far, this will be the coldest it gets. I mean, so we're, we're going to have a couple of days where the morning temperature is around like 12, 13. Mm, and mm-hmm. that's usually a couple of days out of the whole year. And when I say that, that's like 6 a.m., mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's it. And mm-hmm. our winters are mild. They really mm-hmm. are. Okay. Yeah. So okay. I'm setting the record straight. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> I think I think because Maryland is this teeny tiny, like insignificant uh, state. Like whoever thinks about Maryland. And so I think some people's image is that like we're up in New England somewhere. I don't I don't know. <laughs> I have been to Maryland numerous times. I do I, know I, where I know you have. I know you have. Yeah, I, yeah. I just mean in general. I think people just like, oh, Maryland, that must be near Maine. You know? <laughs> yeah, those M states. Maine, Massachusetts, right. Maryland. They're all right. clustered together. Right. So uh, <laughs> it is a pretty mild place. Oh yeah. my goodness. Oh, well, we have, ju- well, and Portland is, despite being far north of Maine, is Portland, Oregon. Uh, yes, it is because the country is tilted. It's not like a map. It's not straight across, um, you know, like a, a jigsaw puzzle that we are not <laughs> like, in the same, uh, is that longitude or latitude? Like I said, would be latitude, I think. Yeah, yeah, latitude, yes. And so, oh my goodness, we had snow and then last night as we record this we had freezing rain and oh my goodness lots of trees down and right now i'm looking out my you know i record in the basement studio and i have a large um easement window and boy it is just it's now raining i think but maybe that's super fast melting ice i don't know i just i'm in a race i have pickleball women's league tonight and it's quite a drive on a perfect weather day to get there and mm. so i'm like please come on because it canceled a lot of pickleball over the weekend oh yeah yeah 
Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, to that, to that end, I mean, here it, it, we got our first snow in two years mm-hmm. yesterday and it mm-hmm. was three inches. The schools were not only closed yesterday, but also today. Oh, so, oh sure. Oh yeah. They were clo- Oh yeah. And they closed things here a day ahead of schedule, you know, yes. so they, oh, they same, make the announcement, same. you know, Monday, they announced Tuesday would be closed yep. yesterday. Yep. Yo, and I get, um, because my younger daughter was a lifeguard, I get call at, which is a, part of the city, you know, Portland Parks and Rec. And so I get uh, like robocalls from the city saying, you know, non-essential workers don't. And I'm like, it's not, it's not her number. Stop calling me. How do I opt out of this? Uh, So, but I I mean, I've been wearing yak tracks and I, I have gone on a couple runs, but I just finally decided it is not worth the like groin pull or the, you know, hamstring calf strain of being out there on a slippery surface. So I'm dressed in my running clothes, but I opted to bake um, some muffins from the Shalane Flanagan, Elise Kopecky. All right. Well, that's nice. That's a nice, (laughs) nice pivot there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, um, speaking of food, we are, our topic today is achieving a healthy mindset around food, mindfulness, and intuitive eating. Our guest is Jenna Holenstein. Her degrees are MS and RDN, and she is a nutrition therapist, meditation teacher, and the author of several books, including Intuitive Eating for Life, How Mindfulness Can Deepen and Sustain Your Intuitive Eating Practice. There's Eat to Love, A Mindful Guide to Transforming Your Relationship with Food, Body, and Life, and then more in the mom meditation realm of things, Mommy Sattva, Contemplations for Mothers Who Meditate or Wish They Could. Jenna is also the mother of one. Hey, before we welcome the guests, I want to let you know I had a little mic problem there in the intro that you probably noticed. It has been fixed, so I'll sound better for the rest of the show. Thanks for joining us, Jenna. I'm so glad to be here. So Jenna, we always like to start by asking our guests about their athletic background. Can you share with us? Sure. Yeah, I actually was an athlete. I was the athletic one in my family. <laughs> so I ran track begrudgingly. I played basketball willingly and I swam gleefully. Mm. Mm. There was not the opportunity to swim during the year uh, at my school. So it was just in the summers, but um, my swimming has ended up being something that I've come back to again and again and was, is, is really important to my overall well-being. Mm. Nice. 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 Yeah. So you've been a dietitian for looks like about two decades. So tell us, tell us a bit about your background and how long you've been an intuitive eating dietitian. So when I was a nutrition undergrad and graduate student, I, like a lot of people studying nutrition, was pretty disordered in my eating. And this is something that I hope to explore a little bit more in the future, sort of how to support people studying nutrition who will go on to become the experts Mm. um, to deal with their own stuff, you know, their own issues with food and body. I was no different. And so when I became a dietitian in 1999, I had the good sense to not go on to a job in which I was advising other people how to, feed themselves. 
Um, and instead I became a medical editor and writer and for many years was in that world. So trying to, you know, just figure out what the truth was in that world, which it's not, it's not an easy area of research to do, you know, there's so many different variables. So there was a lot to learn and discover and I continue to learn and discover, but it wasn't until I dealt with some of my own stuff. First, actually my drinking, I decided to quit drinking when I was 33. So I don't remember what year that is now, but, um, as it turned out, that led to me then making peace with my eating and my body. And it became the sort of doorway I walked through to really transforming my, my life in many ways to revolve around meditation, which I think of these days as just working with reality as opposed to being elsewhere in my mind or in some sort of fantasy world, you know? So. I started my intuitive eating practice in 2012 or 2013 and have been doing it since then. And it's just been this like kind of explosive time in my life where I'm just seeing all these really important connections between how we feed ourselves and how we relate to other people, how we treat our bodies and how we treat other bodies. So it's, it's been a really interesting journey for me. Hmm. Fascinating. So, so before we go down the path, can you define intuitive eating? I sometimes find it a bit squishy to grasp. <laughs> I love the word squishy. Um, <laughs> yes. And I, I am going to lean on the definition created by a researcher named Tracy Tilka to define it. And one of the beautiful things about intuitive eating is that it has been studied and validated over and over again in the scientific research. And so Tracy Tilka is a researcher who took an interest in intuitive eating early on and initially characterized it with three specific elements. The first was primarily eating for physical reasons. The second was giving yourself unconditional permission to eat. Mm. And the third was having ways of coping with emotions that did not involve food. And then she later added a fourth element, which is food body congruence, mm. which means that you don't just make decisions based on how they taste in the moment, but also how you have learned they foods make you feel, right? So an example I often use because it's it's there's a lower charge to it than some of the other examples I could use is lactose intolerance. So if you have lactose intolerance, you learn that when you eat ice cream, for example, you might enjoy the eating experience, but then pretty quickly start to feel, you know, some of the physical ramifications of the lack of the enzyme to break down lactose. And so that can mean bloating, gas, diarrhea, discomfort, things like this. Now, that doesn't actually cause harm to your body to have those things, but they're uncomfortable. And so from the perspective of food body congruence, somebody might more often choose not to have ice cream because it doesn't feel good in their body. It tastes good, but it doesn't feel good. And so they place more value on feeling good than on what mm. tastes good in the moment. Mm. In another situation, you know, say they're on Cape Cod and their favorite ice cream place is there and they're with all their people and they want to have that experience and they decide to have it and they just stay close to home for the rest <laughs> of the day. <laughs> so... You know, the food body congruence piece is actually really important 
it's something that might come later for other folks because sometimes choosing not to eat a certain food can feel akin to restriction, which can echo the time that they were dieting and restricting and things like that. Does that make sense? It does. Mm. A little less squishy? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's firming up a little bit for me. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jenna, I know you have an entire book devoted to the subject, but can you boil down for us how tenets from mindfulness can be useful in reaching a healthier relationship with food and eating? Yeah. So, as I mentioned, the way I view meditation and mindfulness is really about dealing with reality. And so when it comes to our relationship with food, there's a lot of different realities that are constantly changing. Um, We get hungry and hopefully we eat something that we know we like and that works for our bodies. We become satisfied. So then we stop eating. And then the body goes about using those nutrients And then after a little while, it becomes hungry again, and we repeat the process. And so it sounds ridiculously simple to say that working with that reality, the sort of constantly changing but somewhat predictable reality of how your body needs food and then becomes satisfied is one way that mindfulness can help support your relationship with food. But then, because we are not simple beings, you just start to layer on the complexity of the fact, for example, that food is not just for sustenance. It's not just fuel. It's also a way that we celebrate things. It's a way that we connect with people. It's a way that we soothe ourselves sometimes. In my perspective, there's nothing wrong with soothing yourself with food sometimes, as long as you have other ways of soothing yourself too, and you have ways of understanding what your actual need is. But in any given moment, there's a certain reality happening in your body, in your mind, in your heart. And so mindfulness helps you become attuned to that reality, your physical hunger, your emotional hungers, other things that might be happening in your body or in your environment that might make you feel comfortable or uncomfortable. And so mindfulness and meditation help you connect with that reality so that you can see what's happening in real time and then make decisions about how to eat or take other actions as a result. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And is it by the practice of mindfulness in a larger day-to-day scope that then helps you when it's seemingly lunchtime, when you get hungry mid-afternoon, that sort of thing? Or is it tips and techniques learned through mindfulness that then you can implement when you might um, feel an urge to eat more than you really need, you know, so that can things from mindfulness be used as tools? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's both. Mm -hmm. Just like breathing is involuntary, but you can have voluntary control over Mm -hmm. it. Mindfulness starts to change the way your brain functions so that you notice things as they're happening. Mm. And you can also intentionally do certain things to rouse greater consciousness of whatever's happening, Mm. right? Most of us have a, a certain pattern or routine that probably works for us more days than not. 
you know, in terms of like eating three meals a day or six smaller meals a day or something like that. And so I don't think it's possible to be mindful all the time. I think there are times that we're just at least partially on autopilot. But when you practice mindfulness consistently, you become more likely to be present, meaning connected with your sense perceptions and not lost in thought as you go throughout your day. So you're more likely to notice things. And you might also decide, okay, in this moment, something's not feeling right. Let me quiet my body and go inward to see what am I feeling and what do I need? And that would be an example of intentionally you know, calling up some sort of mindfulness exercise in order to clarify, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? So I think it's kind of both. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. That shed a lot of light on it. Thank you for that. Yeah. So Jenna, this is a show aimed at women runners, as you know. Yep. Can you elaborate a bit on the principle of of intuitive eating that deals with movement Mm -hmm. about how people should prioritize what feels good to them when it comes to movement? Yeah. I love this topic of kind of intuitive movement. And in fact, I have an online community called the Intuitive Eating for Life community. And our monthly theme for January is movement. Mm. At one point, when I was sort of thinking about the overall picture of intuitive eating, I created like an image of a tree, an ecosystem. And there are certain things that I realize tend to come earlier in the process of intuitive eating and certain things tend to come later. For example, learning to respond to hunger tends to come earlier, right? Because we have to make sure we're adequately fed in order to even be present enough to focus on the other aspects of intuitive eating. Fullness, on the other hand, might come later, even though a lot of people begin wanting to start on fullness because they feel like they're eating too much. Fullness might have to come a little later as you prove to yourself that you have unconditional permission to eat. And I think Movement can be a little bit like that because like fullness, when we're dieting or restricting, the emphasis is always on stopping, Mm. right? And when we're dieting and restricting or trying to change our bodies, the emphasis is always on movement, but it's often not on movement. It's on exercise. Mm -hmm. It's on creating a calorie deficit. It's on checking the box of the different types of movement in order to not just have cardiorespiratory fitness, but to have strength, to have tone and things like that, you know? Mm-hmm. So we are taking this sort of outside perspective to um, guide how we're moving our bodies. So when we start to look at movement from an intuitive eating perspective, I think of it as sort of shifting allegiance mm-hmm. from those outside things to the inside experience. And I said in, in my book, and I, t- I talk about this all the time, you know, we're born to move. Mm-hmm. We naturally seem to enjoy moving our bodies. You know, I was listening to my son airing his grievances this morning <laughs> about how he shouldn't have to go to school because we can't move our bodies adequately and to move, you know, and to learn properly, we need to be able to move our bodies mm-hmm. because it's so cold outside. Mm-hmm. So we do have this natural love for movement and it's just part of how we express ourselves. And then we become alienated from it when it becomes this thing that we have to do to manage or change our bodies. Mm-hmm. And so in reconnecting with movement, 
a big part of the practice is in part recalling what your relationship to movement was like before you started to think of it as that other thing, connecting with the types of sensations, temperatures, intensities, types of movement that seem to give your body pleasure. And to even figure out, you know, what way of engaging with movement works for my life right now. Mm. I mean, there's, that's, that's a lot to cover, but I think of it overall as that shifting of allegiance and attention to what would feel good mm-hmm. and thereby what would probably more be more sustainable. You know, because I hope to be moving until I die. Mm-hmm. I mean, not until the minute I die, but like, <laughs> I hope to have a relationship with movement and, and realistically, it's going to change over time, mm-hmm. you know? And so if I can continue to connect with how do I like to move my body? What do I like to feel? You know, then I can sort of match that up with certain types of movement that work for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, last week's episode was three master's age or super master's age runners talking about Ooh. how it is that they are still, you know, running and taking part in races in their late 60s, 70s, and even up to 88 was our older, oldest guest. My dad is 80 and he runs every other day. Nice. So love it. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we want to ask you some questions from our Another Mother Runner Facebook community, starting with one from a different Sarah. She writes, my intuition is that I should eat pizza and donuts and wine every day with some Reese's peanut butter cups thrown in. That is surely not a great idea. That is everyone's belief (laughs) about intuitive eating when they start. And so I love the story of one of my very first clients who we had this conversation and she insisted that if she were to listen to intuition, she would eat cheeseburgers, fries, and chocolate milkshakes three times a day. Mm. And I said, well, I see your challenge and I take it. Why don't you try to have cheeseburgers, fries, and chocolate milkshakes for three meals a day? Mm. I'll wait. (laughs) (laughs) And I was living in New York City at the time, and this person was living in New York City at the time, and she made it through half of a day, and it was the summertime. She was walking past one of the fruit stands that we have on every corner in Manhattan, Mm -hmm. and spotted, I can't remember if it was like watermelon or peaches, but it was like a very like timely summer fruit. And she felt this visceral desire for fruit Mm. that really surprised her. And that opened up a whole new world for her because it proved to her that her intuition was not what she feared, Mm. you know? And I think your listener's question really represents what a lot of us fear. And that is that we can't trust our bodies to lead us in the right direction. And that's not a coincidence. We've been taught not to trust our bodies. And I won't even go into all the different ways and all the different players that have benefited from teaching us not to trust our bodies. Mm. But I can tell you this, when you actually challenge that, And you give yourself permission to have even what it is you fear you're going to want the most. Eventually, you habituate to those things physiologically, meaning that they just don't have that special charge anymore. And you realize that, oh, 
naturally, I crave a variety of foods. And so to your listener, I would say, what would it be like to allow yourself to have those foods and maybe not start by bringing all, I can't remember if there were three or four of them, but like all of them in-house at the same time. But what would it be like if you were to start to sort of loosen the grip on your eating and allow for some of these fun or play foods that give you pleasure and start to notice what the what the trajectory of that experience is. I mean, I've heard many times that people don't even like the things that they thought they were going to binge on hmm. when they engage with intuitive eating. And it's because again, this this is a part of the mindfulness piece. They were in in a way they were stuck in their thoughts and their associations about these foods and how they weren't supposed to have them as opposed to being grounded in the reality that, oh, if I even ate that today, I probably wouldn't like it very much. You know, mm. I tell my clients about how, I think it was around this time of year. And um, naturally I was dopamine seeking, you know, with my seasonal affective disorder. And I ordered a jumbo pack of Reese's, not peanut butter cups, because those are too thin. I got the Reese's peanut butter trees that were <laughs> remaindered from Christmas because they're thicker, right? So you could really get a bite into them. And I had one every day for a couple of days with my espresso after lunch, gleefully loved it. And then after a few, you know, the glee started to come down back to earth. Mm. And then eventually it was just this mostly full box sitting in my cabinet for like a year. And it was because I worked directly with that thing. And anytime my mind was like, oh, you know, this is too much this or that, I would redirect my attention to how does this taste? And initially the taste was good, but eventually I tired of it. And I realized you know, if I were going to have a peanut butter or chocolate combination, I probably wouldn't have exactly this one. I might have something with a little better quality chocolate. I might have something with a little less sweetness in the peanut butter. Like I don't really love sweet peanut butter. You know what I mean? So then I started to get into these really kind of granular specific preferences. And that I think is the goal of intuitive eating. It's to finally figure out what you actually like. Because so many of us are living in this sort of fog of, well, those are the foods over there in the shadows that I'm not supposed to even think about, let alone let pass my lips. And then because of that restriction, we stay in relationship with those foods, even though they're in the shadows. Mm -hmm. If we were to let ourselves mm -hmm. have them, we would be able to find out, do these actually fit into what I like now? And how do they fit with my body? Do they feel good in my body? Right? I went mm -hmm. once or twice, I tried to have two peanut butter trees. And the second one was, I couldn't do it. It just didn't work for me. It didn't feel good in my body. It didn't even feel good in my mouth. You know? Jenna, I have to say that it has humanized you so much to admit that you ordered a bunch of Reese's peanut butter trees. Oh, like it was the Amazon thing that came and the like, this is a set, do not sell separately. Like the stores ordered this. <laughs> You're going to open your own bodega and start selling them. Totally. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Of course. <laughs> it's time for us to take a quick break to hear from our generous sponsors. Stay with us to dive deeper into intuitive eating. 
Thanks to Curex for its continued support. For 15% off Curex insoles, visit curex.com and use code AMR15. Whatever activity I'm doing, running, cycling, playing pickleball, or sightseeing, I want to feel supported. With its patented dynamic arch technology, Curex insoles properly support the foot and its natural movement for ideal knee and hip alignment. That's why I have Curex insoles in all my athletic shoes. Curex insoles have flexible support with an ideal level of rigidity. They have a thin, low profile while still providing maximum support and comfort. They make a noticeable difference in comfort during a workout and beyond. At the start of the new year, I debuted a new pair of running shoes and a fresh pair of Curex insoles in them. Curex insoles are one of the main tools I use to keep my back and knees pain-free and to continue to run and build my mileage. Thanks in big part to Curex insoles, I'm contemplating doing a half marathon this spring or summer, my first half in years. Feel the Curex difference. Curex offers the largest line of sport activity-specific insoles, including ones for running, soccer, hiking, walking, golf, hockey, and even ones for folks who are on their feet all day in the workplace. Try Curex risk-free today. The company offers a 60-day warranty, even if the product has been cut to fit your shoes. Visit Curex.com and use code AMR15 for 15% off a pair of Curex insoles. That's C-U-R-R-E-X dot com with code AMR15 for 15% off. Curex.com. Time to get real. If you have a family like I do, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. You can go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. It's remarkable. The application process is all online and on your schedule. No appointments, scheduling, or piles of paperwork. Just apply when it's convenient for you. Did you catch that? No piles of paperwork. Uh Uh-huh. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Fabric has partnered with Gerber Life, trusted by millions of families like yours for more than 50 years. With more than 1,800 five-star reviews, Fabric is rated as excellent on Trustpilot. My husband Jack and I had put off getting life insurance for too long until a dear, dear friend lost her uninsured husband to a heart attack in his early 40s. A heartbreaking reminder that the unexpected can unfortunately happen. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash AMR. That's meetfabric.com slash AMR. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash AMR. Policies insured by Western Southern Life Assurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. So we've got a question from Anna, and she said, I would love for the guest to share the latest research that supports intuitive eating. I know there's a lot of great data, and I've heard Evelyn Trivoli, I Trivoli. pronouncing that, Trivoli, yep. co-founder of the intuitive eating book, referenced some of the findings in interviews. I'm curious to hear if there's any research specific to women endurance athletes. So I did a quick little look. Um, there's not a ton of research in endurance athletes. Um, in some cases, the research is in people who were like retired or in college athletes. But what I, what I found was that 
the results were less about performance, although there was no evidence that performance suffered with intuitive eating, but it was more about like subjective measures of satisfaction and pleasure from eating and anxiety around mm-hmm. eating. I mean, it's something that I would really need to dive into a little bit more to provide what I would find a satisfactory answer. But my initial impression is that the impact is like it is for the rest of us, which is that we start to trust our judgment around food. And we, like I said, kind of loosen the grip on how tightly we're regulating what we're eating. You know, one of the things when somebody's taking on intuitive eating and and making that part of their path is to learn about the ways in which the body can be trusted and which the body is actually really intelligent. You know, as, as moms, I think we've all heard the idea that like, if we're not getting enough calcium when we're pregnant, our bodies are like, that's no problem. Like it'll just leach the calcium out of our bones to give to the baby, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's so many different ways that the body basically says to us, I got this, you know, like, I don't know about you, but I didn't have to do anything to grow my child. I just conducted my business as usual. My body took Mm -hmm. care of everything, you know? Mm -hmm. And so when you take in a variety of nutrients and you experience the somatic joy that includes eating foods that you love or that have significance to you and your family and your culture and your childhood, the results are net positive for your mental health, your quantifiable physical health, and just your sort of quality of life, you know? It's a hard sell sometimes because we think we need to manhandle ourselves in order to ensure, you know, optimal health and all of these other things. I don't even really like using the word optimal because I think it's been sort of co-opted and and made into this thing where we need to engineer ourselves to within a very controlled state for well-being. I, I don't believe that's necessary. The the more I ever try to get control over my body, the more out of control I felt. Mm. And with time, the more I've let go of control and focused on behaviors, the things that I do have some influence on, the better I've been, you know, the more at peace I've felt in my body. Mm-hmm. Well, that leads right into a sensitive question from Rebecca, who asks how to phrase intuitive eating in ways that will not be triggering to someone with an eating disorder. Do you have any more context in terms of why Mm. they would be phrasing it? Mm. Yeah. Or do you, can you intuit what that might be? I just got the sense that even, uh, this is pure speculation, that maybe just listening to this conversation, or if they're intuitive eating curious, just reading about it somehow uh, flips some switches for them that that they find Mm. are not good. But again, that's just pure speculation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we talk about 
kind of trigger warnings and content warnings and things like that a lot. Um, and I, I have a little bit of an unpopular opinion about that, which is that I don't see all of the things that provoke a strong reaction as necessarily bad or something to be avoided. Now, obviously, people have different nervous systems, they have different experiences, they have different levels of reactivity. So two people can hear this conversation. One could be like, "Ooh, this makes me uncomfortable. Um, I'm interested in sort of understanding why that is. And one could feel like, oh, this makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to think about it Mm -hmm. ever again. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But, and, and the world of eating disorders is so complex because of all the, the variations among people and the lack of kind of protocol about how to handle things. But, you know, intuitive eating is really about reimagining your relationship with food and your body so that you are the one who knows best. Mm -hmm. And so if what you're doing right now feels like it's working for you, I'm not going to argue. But if what you're doing right now sort of works in some ways, but feels like it's compromising your quality of life in other ways, then it might be worth looking at. You know, there might be subtle reframings that could help what you're doing work for you in a broader sense. And mind you, I've, I've had conversations with groups and people have gotten mad Mm. about the assertion, for example, that they don't need to, um, restrict their, their child's access to like foods that contain sugar. You know, they've gotten really upset about it. So I understand the sensitivity. It's a very personal thing. It's very often connected with shame, Mm -hmm. how we eat, how our bodies are. And at the same time, I think that it's a topic that requires compassionate honesty with ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so if discussing this feels really triggering or upsetting, then it might be a hint that something needs attention. Mm. And you might not feel ready to do it today, you know, but it might end up being a seed that gets planted that then maybe can ripen later Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with time, Mm -hmm. you know, and just paying attention, just noticing. In all honesty, that's one of the main reasons why I had you on was because I do feel that this is a seed that needs to get planted for a lot of people and that a, a yeah. lot of people don't realize it yet. I I agree with you. I really agree with you. And I appreciate, I appreciate you for that. I appreciate you recognizing that the complexity and the sensitivity and wanting to have the conversation. I th- <laughs> I think that having... Uh, conversations that are not all puppy dogs and rainbows are really important for our well-being mm-hmm. and our culture mm-hmm. and our survival. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I always welcome the chance to have nuanced conversations mm-hmm. about difficult topics. Mm-hmm. Good. You know? Mm-hmm. Well, good. Well, thank you. So 
So this is a somewhat long and, and good question from Courtney. So uh, bear with me while I read it. Um, I, Courtney writes, I've struggled with weight since puberty and have done all the diets. I hear intuitive eating and it scares me. It feels like an invitation to let my inner sugar monster free. I would love to find mm-hmm. a way where I felt in control and my pants continue to fit, but not constantly on a diet. How does intuitive eating fit into weight loss or weight management? How does someone who spent more than three quarters of their lives counting, measuring and tracking or going off the deep end approach intuitive eating and what should our goal be? Yeah. I appreciate that question so much. Mm -hmm. Courtney, you said asked it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Courtney, I just want to speak to you directly and let you know that your experience is the same as 95% of the people that I work with. And I would say also 95 to 99% of the people who are in this online community that I have, it is why intuitive eating came about. It's why there are such uh, spirited (laughs) conversations that go on between people about whether or not sugar is addictive. Um, My perspective based on my reading and the research is that it's not. And I'll tell you why. We need sugar. We need glucose to feed our brains. I think it's like 120 grams a day or something like this. That is the preferred fuel for our brains. And so our brains don't really care if it comes from blueberries or gummy bears. <laughs> but we do need sugar and we do need carbohydrate. Okay. And if we are not getting adequate carbohydrate or adequate calories, we will become fixated on food and specifically items that contain higher sugar content, things that are more easily broken down. This, I think, speaks really loudly to the mind-body connection, right? Because if you can imagine in your physical body, there is an unmet need for carbohydrate. Your body is smart enough to shift your subjective perception of the world to now focus on food, right? So you think you're going to work and be productive and parent and go about your life not getting enough carbohydrate, right? But your body, because it's wired to survive and it's wired to protect you, will shift your thoughts so that it can't quite focus on work. You might have a short fuse in parenting because all you can really think about is food and carbohydrates, That is how the body is engineered to help you meet your own needs, right? And so if you're restricting sugar, you're going to be obsessed with sugar. And that is what proves, and I'm making air quotes now, that is what proves to people that they're addicted to sugar when in fact they just are not getting what they need. Now, I am not advocating for a diet of gummy bears, right? What I am advocating for is... A diet, diet being just what you eat, that is varied, that every single person I've ever worked with, when they've moved through this process, has naturally craved a varied diet. And that includes, you know, grains, vegetables, fruits, proteins, things that are more refined, things that are less refined, you know, a huge variety, okay, as they become really experts in terms of what they want. And so the 
history that you have of restricting for the purposes of weight loss naturally drove you not only to think about food more in an obsessive way, but then probably to eat in a comp- in what felt like a compulsive way. And you interpreted that because you, like we all, live in a diet culture that tells you, see, you can't trust your body, right? Mm-hmm. You just let yourself have one cookie and then you want the whole box. But in truth, your body's focus on eating is evidence of your body working for you. And so the point of this is to bring your body into a state of ease where your needs are being met consistently. Like your body's not on high alert like it was when you were dieting, thinking, oh, well, some days we just don't get our needs met. Other days we get more than we need, right? So which kind of day is it going to be? So with intuitive eating, we get to the place of, oh, this is how I care for myself. This is how I respect my body. I feed it regularly. I feed it carbs, protein, fat, no matter how I feel about it. We're all going to have days that we're not feeling great about our bodies, but feeding them, taking care of them, allowing them to be nourished, that's a non-negotiable. Then we can start to figure out the emotional associations we have with those higher charged foods, you know, that, that you're thinking about when you call it your sugar monster, right? But please know that your sugar monster is a version of your body just trying to protect you. And that there is a place when you're getting enough, and I say that enough in all caps, when you're getting enough, when you know body, mind, and heart that your needs will be met, there is a place where you're, where that sugar monster sort of calms down and is this helpful, um, coach or, or friend for you that says, I could go for something and, you know, either you have that thing or there's another part of you that says, yeah, but maybe what you really need is to call your mom or (laughs) to take a nap, you know, it becomes more discerning and less of like the, the jabberwocky that we, we think of it as. So that was an equally wordy (laughs) answer. Did that, (laughs) there's so much in each of these questions. Like I could write a book for each of these questions. Yeah, no, that I think that's well, it's good. I'm yeah, really good. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So Cindy wants to know, she says, I think there are certain times during the month when my intuitive eating, willpower and common sense are just broken. What are some ways to maintain a consistent habit while PMSing or perimenopausing? Mm. The cravings speak so loudly. Yes. So first, I will share my disdain for the word consistency because we are not consistent. Like just if you look at the the chemistry of, I mean, in some ways we're consistent, right? Like our bodies know how to like keep the sodium levels in our blood within a certain window, right? So we are consistent in that way, but in other ways, in terms of hormone levels, in terms of our needs from one day to the next, we're not consistent. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes that consistency becomes this sort of tyrannical thing that we hold over ourselves and expect that, you know, we're going to eat the same way day after day. I don't know about you, but in the middle of winter, I'm not eating the same way that I eat in the middle of summer, Mm -hmm. right? You know, I might crave different things. I might crave different amounts of things. I might crave different sensations in my body, like heaviness of something in the winter and lightness of something in the summer. Mm -hmm. I do want to validate 
and normalize the fact that there are fluctuations that happen over the course of the month. And then when everything goes cuckoo with perimenopause and menopause of, yeah, yes, <laughs> all, all the yeses to that. <laughs> when it comes to PMS, what is happening for us hormonally can cause us to feel, you know, anxious, low energy, uh, flat, uh, irritable, things like that, that those are symptoms of hormonal changes. And I think what happens in terms of cravings is that there's a part of us that's looking to right the ship. And so there's a tendency to crave like things that will provoke a, a, a dopamine hit or some more serotonin, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's nothing actually magical about chocolate. If you look at the research, like people in Asia don't crave chocolate when they're PMSing, they crave something else. So it's very culturally specific that we have certain things that we crave. But what is similar is that we crave something a little bit differently during that time. And so the way I work with people around the the pre-menstrual time is to recognize that something has changed to track your period so that you know when to expect it. So like every month you're not like hit like, oh, this is happening again. You know, (laughs) it's like I had to get to like 40 before I realized I had seasonal affective disorder. Like every winter I was feeling like the tin man in the pool (laughs) in November. And it's like, what? maybe by now I can recognize this happened the same time last year. So with, with the monthly period, we can recognize, oh, this happens about, you know, 10 days before I get my period, I start to want this, or I start to feel that we can double down on our self care during those times so that we're not walking around with unmet needs. We're getting enough sleep. We're getting enough energy and carbohydrates. We're getting enough comfort and connection. You know, maybe we're getting a little bit more in terms of rest and pleasure and indulgence. (laughs) That's how I see working with that menopause, I'm on that roller coaster right now. (laughs) And it's a little less predictable, right? Because there's no, I mean, this is like uncharted territory, right? I mean, at least for periods, it's like everybody's somewhere between like 20 something and 30 something days with menopause and perimenopause. It's anybody's guess, but to normalize it. Yes, there are changes happening, but change is normal. And I know that change is sort of a dirty word when it comes to our bodies, particularly women's bodies, particularly women's bodies at a certain age, but it is normal. And so when you learn to pay attention to those changes, and I think the secret ingredient might be a little bit more comfort with uncertainty, Mm. then you start to realize, okay, you know, I could be a little bit more constant, a little more steadfast in my sleep routine. I could be choosing to do something gentler on the days where I feel X, Y, and Z. I could connect with other people who were going through a similar phase when I'm feeling this, just so that I'm not only like isolated in my searches on Dr. Google you know, is this normal creepy crawly feelings in my ankles? I mean, cause there's eight, 87 million symptoms that go on, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I just want to normalize change and also your ability to notice 
that something has changed and to meet your needs, even if it's not with a hundred percent certainty, mm. you know, cause in reality, we don't have that certainty. I know we like to think we do, but we really don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is an important takeaway message right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to wrap with two running focus questions from our okay. Facebook page and, and they're both about intuitive eating. So Rachel wants to know, how do you eat intuitively when there are specific foods that are more beneficial before and after working out? For example, uh, Rachel doesn't crave protein after a 10 mile long run and would rather eat waffles or French fries, but she knows protein will help her training more. Mm-hmm. So I think this would sort of fit in with that food body congruence aspect of intuitive eating. Uh, because sometimes when you are an athlete, you need to, for example, eat when you're not hungry or eat mm-hmm. something that you're not exactly craving. And mm-hmm. so I would say in terms of like the protein question for after a workout to I mean, in some cases, you can modify a, a recipe for waffles to contain more protein. You can also add protein-containing things to a waffle or have it on the side. So I like to take a sort of and approach. Mm-hmm. Like you can have what helps repair and you can have what you're craving because in truth, your body needs both. Right. Yeah. I'm I'm a big fan of a, a Belgian waffle and then putting... Uh, Greek yogurt on it. Yes. Or Labni. Mm, mm-hmm. Labni is my obsession right now. I have everybody <laughs> I know eating it. And it's just a little thicker than Greek yogurt. And it has probiotics and protein. And it's it goes with everything. Sweet, savory. Mm. Oh, it's delicious. That's why I had always thought it was, it itself though is pretty savory or no? No, it's, it's neutral. Oh. It's not huh. sweetened. Oh, okay. It's All But right. it's not salted either. Okay. Yeah. All right. I always uh, kind of, in my mind, lumped it a little bit more with creme fraiche or mm-hmm. ricotta, sort of mm-hmm. that end mm-hmm. of the flavor profile spectrum. All of those things would be great on a waffle. <laughs> Let's put all of them Let's on the waffle. Let's put all of them. <laughs> all right. Yeah, so I think that and is a mm-hmm. really important thing. Not the mm-hmm. either or. Think mm-hmm. about like, if I know that this is what helps me, then how can I combine that with something that I want in this moment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's good advice for not just after a hard workout. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I work with people who have diabetes, for example, if they are wanting to eat something that is higher in like refined carbohydrates or just higher in carbohydrates in general, the goal is not to not eat that. The goal is to eat that and eat protein and fiber and fat to modify the glycemic index. Mm. Right. So mm-hmm. it's, so it's really about, you know, cause we're not machines, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. We have mm-hmm. taste buds, we have preferences, we have food lineage that we want to respect. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how could we, how could we combine things to meet all of our complex needs? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You talking about, um, I'm, I'm varying. I'm, I, I've lied about saying we just have two questions, but, um, (laughs) so that, um, you've talked a lot about kind of the comfort and the, I get the sense that there's a kind of emotional other people 
facet to this. And it, it calls to mind that the past couple nights I've been cooking recipes that were my mother's, mm-hmm. um, who died, um, little, just a little over two years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. And, and, and she, thanks. And she, she was, um, she lived well into her nineties. So it mm. was, um, but so, and she was a fabulous cook. And so, I don't know. And I just, I don't know whether it's because we've been having crummy winter weather Mm -hmm. because it was right around the anniversary of her death or something, but, but those, it just felt so, it felt particularly good to eat scalloped potatoes last night. Yeah. (laughs) That's an intuitive, Mm -hmm. that is an intuitive move right there. Right. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to know. Mm -hmm. You don't have, I mean, I want to just name my favorite uh, Buddhist book, which is Comfortable with Uncertainty by Pema Chodron. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to know with mathematical certainty mm-hmm. why, you know, A seemed to lead to B, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that part of intuitive eating, part of meditation is about allowing for somatic knowing, mm. right? Something that probably is very difficult to put into words, but you just know in your body. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. That connection with family and with childhood, with tradition, with celebrations, with shared meals is so important to who we are. Mm-hmm. It's so important to identity. There's actually some research that suggests that we might actually absorb nutrients better when we like the food, hmm. when we have a connection with the food. Hmm. I mean, not the, not the most well-controlled study on the planet, but still a really interesting <laughs> assertion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it matters to give ourselves permission to eat what not only tastes good, but, but feels like nourishment. Like mm. think about what you want to eat when you have a cold or when you're mm-hmm. first eating something after a stomach bug or something like that. Like a lot of times these foods will provide clues as to what were significant foods in childhood or when we needed to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for going with me on that. uh, Seeming tangent. Yeah. So, so this final question comes from Jess Marie who says, I do very well eating clean until my mileage goes up. Then I start craving more sweets and it all goes out the window. It's annoying. What can I do? Stop trying to eat clean. <laughs> I, as I've read that, I'm like, well, I, I bet Jenna's not going to like the phrase eating clean. Uh-huh. Well, because I just, you know, think about all of the examples of eating clean and their sort of um, converse, which is we're only just led to believe that it must be eating dirty. Mm. And um, I... I just, I take issue with that again, because Mm -hmm. the body's so intelligent, the body knows how to meet its needs and you're picking up on, um, how your body is feeling is a Mm -hmm. wonderful way of connecting with, am I doing okay? Or do I need to make some course corrections? You know, Mm -hmm. so that eating clean is often a sort of externally driven idea, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas, an, Instagram, an Instagram driven idea, perhaps. Uh, uh-huh. Yes, it often is, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that sincerely. Mm-hmm. And I mean it's problematic on a lot of different levels. It's also very exclusive in a way mm-hmm. because not everybody mm-hmm. has the same access to what is considered clean food, yep. mm-hmm. and so it's problematic for those reasons too. But I think what is the most important piece here is to recognize when you try to pull your eating to the extreme 
of one direction, like clean or restricted or cutting out a lot of foods, that the tendency is for the pendulum to swing to the other extreme. So what if instead of pulling, initially pulling our eating toward one side of the pendulum, we were to focus on how do I stay in the middle somewhere? Mm -hmm. Right? Is there a way to incorporate the foods that I ultimately end up craving when I'm being restrictive in a way that feels good? And I want to caution people because at first, when you first start doing this, because for a lot of us, the pendulum is pulled all the way to the the more restrictive extreme. When we first let it go, it is going to swing to the other extreme. That's normal. Mm -hmm. That is normal. If you stay the course and you stay with it, and even better, if you have someone to kind of process this with so that they can normalize your experience for you, at least do some reading about it, Mm -hmm. eventually that pendulum will find its way in the middle ground. It'll never stop moving, right? Mm-hmm. We're not, we don't get to that static point of consistency, which is part of why I just don't even love that word. But we will find some middle ground. And then at times we might find that it's pulled in one direction or another. And mindfulness can help us notice that and to make a kind of cohesive narrative. Oh, I can understand why I was relying on these more refined comfort, you know, childlike foods for a while, I was grieving during Mm. that time. Mm -hmm. Or I can understand why I was being more restrictive and strict and then ended up binging. It's because I was feeling like everything around me was out of control. And at least I could control my diet, but it's just not a sustainable thing. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. so that conversation that goes on between the mind and the body is so important in just connecting dots and making sense of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm. All right, Jenna, we are going to leave it there because I think that is, uh, I hope that that kind of uh, pings around in people's brains for a while. So I've really enjoyed this conversation, Jenna. Thank you. I'm, and I'm so glad the New York Times led me to you. So. Oh, me too. It's <laughs> yeah. great. I love talking about this. <laughs> okay, good. Take care. Take care. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation and I hope you're thinking about joining us in Lake Placid in early September where we are having our annual retreat. It's going to be great. It's a new location for us. Our host property is right there in town. If you haven't been to Lake Placid, New York, it is such a charming village that's just steeped in Olympic history. Very lovely little main street with shops and cafes and then It all backs up to a boat-free lake called Mirror Lake that I just adore open water swimming in. So we are going to be running and uh, maybe stand-up paddleboarding, kayaking. Folks who want to join into the open water swimming can do that. We'll be hiking, laughing, having great meals, uh, listening to experts that we bring in that then you can take home and implement the recommendations and insight that they shared into your running, into your everyday life, into your self-care People definitely find our retreats life-changing and they make lifelong friends during them. So please consider joining us in Lake Placid September 6th to 9th. For all the details and to register, go to anothermotherrunner.com, click on events, and you will see it in the dropdown. Again, anothermotherrunner.com. Our podcast today was produced in St. Paul, Minnesota by Barry Medore from Fire on the Bluff. Oh, look at that cat tail. Got yeah. A cat. We got a cat butt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I'm going to try to encourage her to assume her regular position. <laughs> I just know that if I don't have her in here, she's going to want to be in here. So it's oh, all right. I'm what, coping ahead. What's your cat's name? Lucy. Oh, hi, Lucy. Yeah, very good. She's My cat decided it needed to sit in the at the bottom of our laundry chute. Somehow he climbed into the little basket that's there. So. Uh, <laughs> 